Hi, this is James Brown, soul brother number one, always fighting. Now I'm fighting for your life. I'm fighting for your life because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs because they are super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad. Super bad. Our guest today was once taught by a mentor to look for valuable data in unexpected places. So it was that when several shipping containers went to sea in 1990 and spilled thousands of Nike shoes, our guest, an oceanographer, decided to see what the mishap could do to expand our knowledge of ocean currents. Curtis Ebbesmeyer holds a PhD from the University of Washington. With a strong engineering background, he's worked in the design of offshore oil platforms and helped plan where wastewater treatments should be placed based upon his work on currents. But Dr. Ebbesmeyer has really made his mark in flotsometrics, the study of floating objects. In fact, we think he coined the term. In devoting his attention to Nike shoes and other mass flotsam episodes, it turns out that a lot could be learned, some of it pretty amazing. We're keen to discuss his new book, Flotsometrics and the Floating World. It is subtitled, How One Man's Obsession with Runaway Sneakers and Rubber Ducks Revolutionized Ocean Science. And we want to explore that revolution. Curtis Ebsmeyer, welcome to Radio Parallax. It's a pleasure, Douglas. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, you're welcome. The first question I have, and it's, it's just a quick quickie, what's the difference between flotsam and jetsam? <laughs> well, flotsam... It's the old term for what falls overboard accidentally from a ship, and jetsam is what comes from the word jettison, to throw something overboard from a ship to save the ship. Well, we'll be talking about both today. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, when something gets a, when you find something floating on the ocean, you don't really know what it is. So, in, in I just use the term flotsam too as a uh, to embrace everything that floats. Well, when these sneakers and rubber ducks went into the deep blue sea, you were intrigued as to whether some computer models of a friend of yours might predict their path in the water. Let's, let's talk about that. Well, my friend uh, Jim Ingram had, a, had been working on a computer model known as Oscar's Ocean Surface Current Simulator, OSCURS, and uh, he had been developing it to figure out how currents uh, impact or deflect salmon on their uh, migrations around the Pacific so I thought, well, gee, a sneaker is nothing but a, a salmon without a swim speed. So I <laughs> said, can you, can you just put sneakers in your model and see if, see if the model works pretty well? And, and uh, I gave him a blind test, and I told him where the sneakers fell overboard on what date. And uh, lo and behold, he got a very accurate prediction halfway across the Pacific Ocean. And I, I uh, thought, wow, that's really cool. So we published it in a peer-reviewed journal, a gold standard of oceanography, and people liked it. Yeah, you got a fair lot of publicity back there, back there in the 90s. Yeah, and the science, scientists liked it. It was a, really a, a great test of the model. Jim had only run it for a, a month or two before this, comparing with satellite um, drifters, satellite-tracked uh, oceanographic drifters. And 
so this this was a test of over a year, so it was a really nice piece of science, too. Well, you had a graph in your book which shows how that, that during the International Geophysical Year, scientists put like 34,000 bottles uh, with messages in, in the sea. But to the Nikes and later on some rubber ducks which followed them, um, it gave you some of the same science for free. It did. Uh, those uh, 34,000 bottles that were released during the International Geophysical Year, they probably cost a buck a bottle to put overboard. And, um Today it would be more like ten or twenty dollars. So it's a, and we really don't want to pollute that much anymore. But when you have an accident like eighty thousand Nikes at one spot, and each shoe is numbered, uh, you actually have uh, eighty thousand messages in shoes, as it were. So uh, <laughs> if you have lemons, you make lemonade. And I, I thought, wow, this is pretty cool, unprecedented in oceanography to have eighty thousand numbered <laughs> objects released at one time in one place. Well, let's talk a little bit about this famous shoe episode. Uh, you, you got a lot of help in your research from a beachcomber who, among other people, was basically mixing and matching those shoes as they came ashore by the hundreds and, and getting, giving people a, a full set of shoes that way. Yeah, Steve McLeod was uh, a, literally a starving artist, and he, he matched the shoes because they came ashore wearable, but Nike didn't tie the shoelaces together. So there were, uh, here you had a $100 shoe, uh, with not the mate, so uh, Steve was cleaning them, sort of debarnacling them, and uh, matching them up uh, through the mail uh, all along the U.S. West Coast and up into Alaska. So uh, he was selling them for 30 bucks a pair, and uh, I went down to see him, and there he had 1,600 shoes where and when they were found, and that was just a, really a scientific bonanza. A surprising finding that these shoes, even after they bobbed around the Pacific for years, we're still wearable. Yeah, hey, uh, that's amazing, because I, I know when teenagers wear those kind of shoes, uh, they'll blow them out in, in six months. But I found uh, a friend of mine gave me a shoe that washed up in Hawaii after three years, and it was still velvety and wearable, wearable inside. So it's, uh, uh, as far as I could tell, teenagers are tougher on shoes in the ocean. <laughs> We, we might want to note that there, there really is a determined uh, community of beachcombers out there, and you have a publication that, that's reached them, and maybe some more listeners want to know more about that. Uh, I guess it's, it's the Beachcombers Alert? Yeah, I've been doing, uh, for about, I don't know, 15 years now, I've been doing the Beachcomber Alert quarterly newsletter. and Basically what it is is beachcombers send in articles about what they see and photographs, and I edit them together into a quarterly newsletter and send it back out. And uh, So it's... Uh, Basically, what floats is seen uh, primarily by beachcombers because you can't see it from space, you can't see it from ships. Um, so the uh, beachcombers are really the eyes and the ears on the ocean about what floats. Well, you had uh, a really uh, numerous bits of surprising data sprinkled throughout the book. One that really, really got me was that consistently you found right shoes and left shoes, they wash up on different beaches. Yeah, yeah, that I think it's a fundamental aspect of the ocean that... Uh, left and right, um, how should I say, left and right float differently. The wind blows on them differently because you can't face them into the wind with the same profile. Uh, try doing it in your bathtub sometime. It's really an interesting science fair project for kids. So uh, basically the winds and the currents deflect the shoes to different shores. And I think it's a fundamental aspect of evolution that, uh, like, for example, a skate egg, the left and right pouches are delivered from left and right um, delivery tubes, and they're shaped a little differently. And I think what that does is uh, increase the dispersion of the uh, pouches to 
greater uh, greater sh- number of shorelines, so and that increases the chances of survival. And I think it's an overlooked aspect of evolution. Well, now, as a boy, I remember looking, we were in elementary school studying uh, a bit about ocean currents, and we all know about the the, the, the Gulf Stream and, and things like that. But um, fascinating aspect of your book was that by studying this flotsam, you noted that they were completing orbits around the sea. They were washing up, in, in essence, in, in successive laps. And your book outlines these ocean gyres more clearly than anything I've seen. And, and I gather you're kind of on the cutting edge of these uh, these gyres that are not quite fully recognized by, by oceanographers. Yeah, they, they really haven't. Uh, the idea that flotsam goes all the way around was not previously recognized. In fact, I published a paper in 2007 say, saying just that. And, and we uh, found five different kinds of flotsam that went around one gyre and gave the same lapping period, like, you know, the Roger Bannister's uh, four-minute mile and four laps. So basically the flotsam has gone around uh, a gyre up near Alaska in uh, lap would lapping time would be uh, three years, and we've had five laps so far. So uh, every time the ducks go by, they go by as a flock, and you see more toys uh, at Sitka where we have good records. So it's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing that the gyres haven't been looked at as a group of a group of entities on the planet, even though they cover 40% of the ocean. So I, I said, gee, this is pretty amazing. I better rectify this. Well, you've got 11 different names in there, easy to remember names, and I, I, I suspect they're going to catch on. <laughs> well, I, 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 I really believe that you, you save the things you love, so we can save an awful lot of the ocean if we, if we, uh, uh, and you name the things you love. So um, I thought it. We better name these because they, one of them wasn't even named. Uh, I don't even. They really weren't thought about as an entity, um, and flotsam really hadn't been looked at as going around. So the orbital periods had never been computed. So uh, I just thought, well, gee, I love these things. I better name them. The people, I suspect people are going to follow your lead on this. Uh, another another fun fact from your book: the Mediterranean Sea. Um, tends to suck the Atlantic water inward because of all the evaporation in the eastern part, the dry part of, of the region. And what stuns me, it's the equivalent of five Amazon rivers going past the Straits of Gibraltar. Yeah, it's, it's pretty a pretty large volume of water. Um, evaporation over in the Middle East is so great. It, it just sucks in an enormous volume of water, and then it, that water sinks and goes back out along the bottom of the Strait of Gibraltar. Uh, um, and that sucking action must draw in a lot of flotsam from the uh, North Atlantic, although I, it hasn't been uh, described yet. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm hoping beachcombers will tell me about things that originate in the Atlantic and are found in the Mediterranean. I do have about five messages and bottles that were released in the United States that were found in the Mediterranean. So I know it happens. Um, and there's no way for the flotsam to get out of the Mediterranean once it goes in. So. Uh, it just hasn't been explored yet. Well, Curtis, you dug out some historical cases of flotsam metrics that I think we just absolutely have to go over. We we all know that Christopher Columbus uh, was you know had some evidence that that he could sail across the Atlantic and get to America. But you you uncovered some facts that he had he observed fresh driftwood, knowing it hadn't been in the ocean that long. And what really startles me. Uh, evidently, some Eskimos and kayaks arrived in, in Europe or the Azores. They had died not that long ago. They looked Chinese to him, and that really convinced him that China was close. Yeah, it's uh, actually in, in his uh, letters, uh, his, his, his proposal for funding <laughs> to the Queen. <laughs> his proposal for funding to the Queen actually listed flotsam 
as one of his reasons that land could not be that far away. And he actually listed fairly specifically the uh, objects, the floating objects. Uh, some were tropical seeds from the uh, South American jungles. Uh, another was timber bamboo, which only grew in, uh, in the Americas. Another was the Eskimos you, you talked about. And that, there was one that uh, washed up in the Azores, and quite a number dating back into uh, Roman times had been recorded in Europe. Um, and see what else. There was also a boat that, uh, you know, a craft that really only was not found in Europe. So he, he listed these things, and um, uh, I believe it's my supposition that it looked so fresh that he knew that land could not be that far off to the west. And that was the main reason, that I think, that he could rebut the geographers who said, well, China China is twice as far as you think. And they were both right. They just didn't <laughs> realize there was another continent out there. <laughs> Indeed. The book is Flotsymetrics and the Floating World, How One Man's Obsession with Runaway Sneakers and Rubber Ducks Revolutionized Ocean Science. We're speaking with author Dr. Curtis Ebsmeyer. Um, Curtis, you sluiced out some references also that maybe some Inuit actually made it to Europe alive, as well as some Japanese uh, probably got to Hawaii and, and possibly even to North America. Another fascinating little historical tidbit. Well, there's uh, the, the fact about the Japanese uh, drifting to North America is uh, based, in fact, uh, since about 18, oh, 1820s, there's been something like five Japanese fishing vessels that drifted from the coast of Japan all the way to North America with survivors, typically three, three or four or five. Um, then those, those date up to um, 1870s, the 1870s. Um, they're, recorded, uh, they're recorded in scientific papers and so forth. And um, uh, my friend Betty Meggers, who works at the Smithsonian, has uh, estimated that a boatload of uh, Japanese drifted to Ecuador 5,000 years ago. So it's a process that's been going on, I think, for a long time, and um, it's been overlooked that some of these people might have had uh, significant impacts on uh, North American peoples. Yeah, you didn't get into too much in the whole Thor Heyerdahl thing in your book, but uh, he, he Heyerdahl thought guys were floating all over the oceans. Uh, do, do, do you tend to think that he was right? I, I do. I think that people were floating all over the ocean. I think the... Uh, Newfoundlanders uh, <clears throat> were being blown out uh, across the ocean in their kayaks. The Japanese fishermen uh, trying to deliver tributes to the shogun were being blown offshore by uh, the winds off so out of Siberia, and they drifted to uh, 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 North America. The Eskimos uh, drifted from Newfoundland to Europe. Um, so I, I don't have any doubts that people were drifting across the ocean for a long, long time. Well, you wrote a, a, an interesting piece in, in, in New Scientist magazine. You talk about in your book how the settlers of Iceland jettisoned some things um, overboard and then watched where it came ashore, and you explain how important that was to people on islands to take advantage of where currents were dumping things on the beach. Any, any beachcomber knows that flotsam um, accumulates in certain places, and um, they'll go there. <laughs> It's just like fishermen. Fishermen know where the fish like to hang out, called fishing holes. And so uh, beachcombers go to these places. And uh, the Vikings were no dummies, and they knew that uh, driftwood would accumulate where other driftwood washed up. And it was uh, in their um, 
tributes to Thor, their god Thor, that when you approached a new land, you threw overboard a drifting object, a cherished drifting object like a, a coffin or a, a bench board or a high seat post from a favorite chair. And um, wherever that washed up, you would build your house. And that's actually sound oceanographic beachcombing knowledge because the, those objects were wooden and they'd wash up where other wood was found. And In fact, Reykjavik is where the first drifter, drifting objects washed up and they had floated halfway around Iceland. So uh, um, all I did was go to the Icelandic sagas and pull out um, five or seven drifting objects written up in a Ph.D. thesis a long time ago from one of Iceland's most famous oceanographers. And he hadn't gra grasped it up, so I just made a, made a map, and I said, this makes good sense. And I just noted that the, the Icelanders, the Vikings of long ago, uh, knew of a current that went all the way around uh, Iceland. And, and that graph is in the book. Um, we we talked about the, the gyres in the ocean, and at, at the center of them uh, these days, we find these immense patches of garbage, mostly plastic, and apparently you've also coined the term we're not using for these, garbage patches. Uh, the scope of this problem is just coming into focus. Can you talk about the, the immensity of these things? They're huge. I mean, the one that uh, we started noticing them when we were doing the, the drift of the ducks, um, the ducks would escape the gyre up in uh, the northern gyre, or the Aleut gyre between uh, Japan and Alaska, and they would escape and head south, and a lot of them wound up going round and round in a in a giant circle between uh, Hawaii and um, California, and uh, it measured about 500 miles across, looked to be several times the size of Texas, and uh, at, for the beachcomber alert, I kept getting uh, letters from mariners saying, gee, I, I uh, sailed through the area, and I, when the waves would set down, I'd see glass balls, and I'd see refrigerators and tires and stuff, and, and, and slowly I began to see that the Oscars, the computer model, was um, actually showing this, and I said, I coined the term, I said, Jim, uh, we were kind of, maybe had a beer or so, and, and uh, I said, it looks like a garbage patch to me, and uh, <laughs> the term caught on. Well, you know, when we announced that you'd be on the show a few weeks ago, a caller, Jake, asked me to ask you a uh, question, which I think I will do, uh, which was, why can't we send these whaling boats that people don't like to be killing whales out to haul in some of that trash from the garbage patches? Excellent idea. I've had the same thought about why can't we use the uh, the navies around the world to, when they're not fighting a hot war, go out and you know collect it. Basically, most of it is is small. Uh, it's um, you need a cheesecloth to kind of. You have to tow a very fine mesh net to catch it, because um, the plastic doesn't doesn't ever degrade. It just it just fractions into ever smaller pieces, and when it gets down to the size of table salt, it starts looking like plankton, and it gets into the food chain. So that's the size we're dealing with. And uh, I thought, well, gee, if if the navies of the world went out into the garbage patches of the world and towed cheesecloth. Um, we could clean this up. But, uh, so uh, Jake put his finger on it. <laughs> yeah. You uh, you know, the thing in your book that just scared the hell out of me, frankly, was talking about those little plastic bits getting smaller and smaller and actually acting like little sponges for toxins, which then get uh, into the food chain. Uh, 
What can we do about this? Use few, use less plastic? Yeah, that's a very good point. The uh, chemicals, the nasty chemicals in the ocean, adsorb and kind of go right onto the surface of the plastic. And so when when the food chain absorbs these little doses of kind of little bombs of plastic uh, and toxins, it's they're really nasty. And uh, I'm afraid we can't really. There's no effective way of cleaning it up. I'm afraid, but the most effective thing we can do is to shift from um, petroleum-based plastic, that is plastic made from crude oil, which is probably 99% of it now, to uh, a green plastic, which is made from corns and, you know, uh, a kind of plastic that will dissolve back to its constituent elements like hydrogen and that kind of thing. So we have the technology. We just have to find the will to use it. You know, from the good news department, uh, you, you note that uh, petroleum, like in crude oil spills, maybe aren't as bad as people think because uh, nature's bacteria does know how to digest oil, and so that uh, maybe oil spills aren't as a big a concern as, as, they, as they are to some people. You know, oil has been around since a long, long, since there's been living creatures, and, you know, the natural environment knows how to deal with it because there's a lot of natural oil seeps and a lot of oil in the water. Uh, but as soon as you refine it into plastic, uh, you're talking about something that nature hasn't evolved any strategy to deal with. So we have a we have a difficulty there. Um, but uh, what I was trying to get at is that there's so many things that go into the ocean that are um, uh, really nasty, a lot nastier than oil. Like uh, we had a spill from a container ship of seven containers holding 2,000 computer monitors, and. Uh, um, Computer monitors, when they're washed up on the beach in California and Washington, are considered hazardous waste. Wow. Yet, when they fall overboard, there's no requirement that they be cleaned up. And when they, there's no requirement when they wash up on shore that they actually be cleaned up. So I, I find this, this, um, this schizophrenic behavior uh, really appalling. So, uh, um, you know, the, the, the cathode ray tube is wrapped, it has a lot of lead wrapping, and it has a lot of, um, um, the uh, computer monitors have these uh, circuit boards that have a lot of chemicals in them, and so there's a lot of things that fall in the ocean that are far more hazardous than um, um, uh, crude oil. And for example, uh, the container industry told me, they said, well, gee, we only lose two to 10,000 containers a year out of a 100 million ship. That's a pretty good accidental rate. I said, well, that may be true, but one container can hold uh, one million plastic shopping bags, uh. and one is lethal can be lethal to a sea turtle, and that's five million is more than the population of the sea turtles. So, one one container can be catastrophic. So I I see again this uh, false reasoning. Yeah. You know, I just want to, we're clo- in closing, there's a couple little uh, novel items that you, you proposed in the book that I certainly never thought about. I'm not sure anybody thought about them. You raised the issue that uh, pumice, floating rock, uh, in, in, in past times must have been much more common when there's more volcanic activity on Earth. You know how early in our history that floating rock might have been a great uh, great place for, the, for life to get its start. Yeah, I, it seemed like a no-brainer to me because the... Uh if you, if you wait long enough, there will be an eruption that will put enough pumice on the ocean to cover the ocean. And that, that's happened many, many times in the past. And uh, so I, I envision an ocean covered with rock. And um, pumice is nothing more than little glass test tubes. 
And uh, so here you, can, you have chemicals in little test tubes with lightning zapping it, and then the, the test tubes uh, confine the uh, chemical mixture. So I kind of wondered if that's where life may have originated a long, long time ago when the, the uh, volcanic action uh, covered the ocean. I think a lot of people are going to give that a second look now that you've, now that you've brought it up. Well, I, I hope so. Um, you know, it's just, it just seems like something that's uh, worth trying. I, I think they've tried at, uh, you know, primitive atmospheres, and they've zapped it with um, lightning, and I think they got amino acids. All I, do, all I would add is add some rocks to the mixture and see what happens. Sure. Well, uh, we're kind of up against it on time, so I guess the final question I'd, I'd have for you, and I suspect the answer is yes, is have you personally found a bottle with a message inside? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um, the one I found, several I found, uh, didn't go very far, but it got to me thinking, you know, it's not so important how far a bottle goes, it's who you meet. And uh, um, so that, that's the message I would have is, is uh, don't think about it, because it doesn't have uh, a long distance or any money in it or anything like that, it's please respond and um, you never know who, who you're going to meet. And you also note, uh, as we close, you, you did quite a few stories in the book uh, looking into some of these legends about uh, messages in bottle, which is bottles, which is very entertaining. Oh, yeah, there's uh, the, those Guinness bottles that were put out in the 50s, the 200,000 Guinness bottles celebrating the uh, 200th anniversary of the Guinness Beer Company. They're still washing up, and uh, inside is a beautiful message from King Neptune. It's a beautiful color image, so don't pass by an old beer bottle. You just never know. Well, our guest has been Dr. Curtis Ebbesmeyer. His book is Flotsometrics and the Floating World, How One Man's Obsession with Runaway Sneakers and Rubber Ducks Revolutionized Ocean Science. It's been a great pleasure to speak speak with you, Dr. Ebbesmeyer. Uh, Douglas, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for uh, taking a close reading of the book. <laughs> You're welcome, sir. I'm Douglas Everett, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week. Message in the box.